Thanks. <laughs> Genesis 22, as I said, underneath my breath. Before I get into the text, I'd like to uh, talk about a couple of other things. And since how I have all this wonderful time, I can go ahead and waste as much of it I want and uh, owe the Lord later. How many of you are going to the cure debates tonight? The cure debates. It's got to be about 50 of us. We are just going to go there, shout, Fida Sola, Sola Scriptura. It's going to be a great time. Go ahead and put the Catholics to running. Yes. Uh, if you don't have a ticket to go, I, I think that they probably would be taking money at the door. I would really encourage you to, to get out and do this. Uh, Michael Horton is going to be... Uh, leading up the team of evangelicals that will be debating three Roman Catholics. Three, three evangelicals, three Roman Catholics. It'll be a great time. There's two sections, uh, Fida Sola, which is justification by faith alone, which will be tonight, and then tomorrow will be Sola Scriptura by the word alone. I also wanted to say, where's the seniors? Where's my seniors? They've got to be here someplace. May 6th is coming, right? May 6th is coming. You want to make money, right? You want to make money off from this graduation thing, right? Buy some announcements. <laughs> Great return. Great return, right? We're promising you at least 600%. You buy 20 bucks worth of announcements, 600% back guaranteed. 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 Announcements. We'll be in the student center right after chapel. Please come see us. I also wanted to, uh, to plug something else while I was up here, and that's uh, the art club, which started last Wednesday night. Where's Scott Nelson? Where's Scott Nelson? There he is. He's, uh, he's heading up the art club. What we're doing is we're just uh, getting together as far as aesthetics are concerned, talking about aesthetic issues, how uh, Christianity deals with aesthetics and how it all correlates together. We have like uh, an hour and a half. Is that right? We're going to take an hour and a half. 45 minutes will be sent, spent discussing the background of aesthetics and how it has a Christian worldview, and then 45 minutes will be used for practical application, sketching or, or some other such thing. But what we need is, you need to be there. You need to be there. I, I would just encourage you to be there. It's, it's important to me. Um, I think uh, as far as just uh, aesthetics is concerned in general, the church has really left it alone. And I hear the chair squeaking, so maybe I better start doing something now, huh? Anyways, Genesis 22. Reading from verses 1 to 19. And I'm reading from the King James. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and laid it upon Isaac his son, and also took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. 
And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him upon the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of, Abram, out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For I now know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. And he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withhold thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose again and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. What I want to do today is not use a three-point outline. I don't usually use a three-point outline, and I'm not going to justify that. Um, I realize that having a three-point outline allows the congregation to have something to lay their hat upon to be able to follow the message. But what I really want to do today is direct you to the text directly. Just get you into the text. Better yet, I'd like to get you a little bit so concerned about the text that you just, you want to soak up the text for all that it's worth. That's what I want to do today. I want to get you so fired up that you say, you know, maybe Tom's wrong. Maybe I can find out where Tom's wrong by studying this text better. I'd, I'd, I'd love that. Prove me wrong. That's, that's great. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a small introduction. Small introduction. Just to show you where some of my thinking is going. Then I have, quote, two points. We're going to define faith. I'm going to give you the definition of faith. And then we're going to show you the demonstration of faith. The definition of faith. The demonstration of faith. The reformers. Calvin. Calvin. Luther, Zwingli. The reformers thought that man had fallen in the garden. Because of the fall, sin enters into the world. Man is tainted by sin. But there's also another implication of that fall, and that fall brings about the separation of God from man in that relationship that should be there. There is no relationship between God and man. Not only is there no relationship between God and man, man does not want to have a relationship with God. So therefore, the work of Christ has to accomplish two things. First of all, it has to take away the guilt of sin. has to take away the guilt of sin. And secondly, it has to change the heart so that man can come into that relationship with God. The cross accomplished that. The cross accomplished that. Also in Reformation thought, they assumed that due to Genesis 1.27, which talks about man being actually created in the image of God, that man has worth, man has value. Yes, it's true that we are totally depraved, but man also has value because he's been created in the image of God. His value comes from the fact that he is linked with his creator. 
being in God's image. That value is not just for those who are ministering. That value is not just for those who are ministering in some specific capacity. That means if you're a business major and you're going to be going into business someday and you're a Christian, that that value is going to be transcending through all of your activities. It's not just a specific pinpointed activity. See, unfortunately, value today, we seem to think as Christians. Let me see if I can make this plain because I'm not so sure I can make it plain. We seem to think today as Christians that only when we are ministering are we doing the will of God. It's called compartmentalization, right? You just go ahead and you section off your life and you say, well, I've got my ministry here on Sunday and then I go ahead and I go to work and I'll work and nobody has to know that I'm a Christian and I'll drive my car. Whatsoever you do, do it to the glory of God. Because of the value that we have in being created in God's image. Now, how does that have to deal with faith? Faith actually is the demonstration that we are created in that image. It's the demonstration of grace, right? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through faith. God has given us the grace. And then that faith is actually the demonstration that that grace is upon our lives. So let's define faith. And to define faith, I want to look at the book of John. John 20, 31. If you've taken New Testament survey, you realize that the purpose statement of the book of John is included in John 20, 31. The interesting thing about the book of John is that the word faith never shows up. You never find the noun word for faith. The noun word for faith in the book of John is pistis. Pistis. It doesn't show up. But the verb form does. Pisteo. Pisteo. And it's translated believe. Believe. You find belief through the book of John continually. And if you're looking at the, at the uh, purpose statement of John in John 20, 31, it says, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. There are two views on exactly what to do with that word believe. Is belief in that verse meaning that that initial belief that you come to salvation, or is believing something that goes on continually within the, uh, the saved person's life? I'll take the second view and say that what it is is for the Christian to continually to believe. The Christian to continually believe. The book of John was written so that the Christian could continually believe. And what do I mean by continually believe? I don't mean that you have to believe again, believe anew all over again. What I'm talking about is that belief is something that needs to be proven. Proven. Now it's interesting that in the book of John, he uses pisteo as a verb form instead of pistis, the noun form. Because pisteo indicates the verb. It indicates action. Action. Faith is action. Faith is action. 
And that's what we have here in our text. Faith becoming action. And you'll allow me to diverge for a moment and deal with a a small issue in verse 1. In the King James it says, tempt. It says, God tempted Abraham. In the NASB it says, tested. In the NIV it says, tested. In the Amplified Bible it says, God tested and proved Abraham. Now, the word in the Hebrew is nasa, tested. In the Greek, when they translated the Septuagint, it's perazo. Perazo is also used in the book of James, James 1.13, where it says God does not tempt man. God does not tempt man. So if you look at the King James, you look at James 1.13 and you look at Genesis 22.1, you've got a small problem. Right? And it's even the same word. So what do you do with that? I refer you to Kelly Bird's message on 1 Corinthians 10.31 because he discussed the whole issue fairly well and fairly completely. But what it comes down to is this. Temptation, as defined in the English language, means to entice somebody to do evil, whereas in the Greek and in the Hebrew, it means more of a trial, of a testing. Also, the word test or perazo in the Greek is translated two different different ways depending on who is doing the testing. If it's Satan doing the testing, it's temptation because he's trying to bring about a fall in the believer's life. If it's God doing the testing, it's because he wants to bring about righteousness. Right? Y'all with me? I don't even know. <laughs> Got a lot of blank looks out there. I'm really nervous, so. Temptation. Testing. God tested Abraham. It says in Proverbs 17, 3, that the silver is for the refining part. The silver is for the refining pot, but the Lord tries the heart. What does that mean? It means when that silver is put into the pot, it goes through a high, high temperature to go ahead and and get all the dross out. You get the dross off from the top. And just in the same way that that silver goes through a hot, hot temperature, we go through hard, hard circumstances so that God can take the dross out of our lives. That's the purpose of testing. That's the purpose of testing, to make us, to conform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Let's move on to the the demonstration of faith, and I'm going to camp here for quite a bit. You see, in the text, Abraham was asked to do a very hard thing by God. He was asked to take his son, his only son, whom he loved. By the way, this is the first time that this word love shows up in the Old Testament. Thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. Can you imagine Abraham when God asked him to do this? First of all, he had been promised by God. 
He had been promised by God that he was going to be made a great nation. He had been promised that he was going to have a seed. He had been promised by God that through the seed of his own body, the nations would be blessed. And now it seems that in his old age, God was going to take that very promise from him. Can you imagine if your only child was required of you by God? Your only child. Some would say that Abraham just all of a sudden said, threw up his hands and said, okay, God, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll, I'll make this leap and I'll do this. I'd like to point out that there was a three-day trip between Beersheba and Mount Moriah. Abraham had plenty of time to think about this. Plenty of time. It says that he, he got up immediately the next morning to go ahead and take Isaac to Mount Moriah. Immediately the next morning and started on this three-day trip. Immediately. This is the same Abraham that when he was approaching Egypt says to his wife, why don't you just tell him you're my sister? Why don't you just tell him you're my sister so that I won't be killed and they'll take you away from me? You understand that this is that same Abraham. That same Abraham. That same Abraham. Who is now immediately getting up the next morning and taking his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. The next morning. Abraham takes his son. They arrive at Mount Moriah three days later after he's had all this time to think about this. He's had all this time to deliberate how he could get out of this. He's had all this time to figure out what he could do to make sure that he didn't have to sacrifice his son. And then as they go away from, he takes up the wood. He puts it on his son. He puts the, he puts the wood on his son. He puts the wood on his son. Can you imagine putting the wood on your son, knowing what you're going to be doing with this wood? He takes up the fire. And his son says, hey, Dad, we got the wood. We got the wood. And, and you got the fire there. But where's, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? You like to imagine that Abraham caught his throat at that moment, but the text doesn't really indicate that. What the text says is that Abraham answered immediately. My son, God himself, will provide a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 11 sheds some light on this. Why don't you turn to Hebrews 11? You see, he, he answered immediately. He answered immediately. Hebrews chapter 11. Looking at verse 17. 
By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed by called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Accounting that God was able to raise him up. He believed that God would raise him from the dead. He believed God would keep his promise. He clung to that. That's faith. That's faith. That's faith. And not only that. And not only that. Not only did he believe that God would raise him from the dead and keep the promise. But he believed in resurrection. You see. Many people would say the Old Testament saints didn't believe in resurrection, and yet there's proof right there in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed in resurrection. Abraham believed in resurrection. So he takes his son up. He binds him. He lays him on the wood. He takes the knife. He takes the knife. And he gets ready to sacrifice his son. Not only does he get ready, because it says in, in Hebrews eleven seventeen that he had offered him. It's in the past tense. The past tense. The act was already done. He had offered Isaac. It was completed. In God's eyes, the offering was done. And suddenly there's a voice. And it's interesting that his, his name is called twice. It's Abraham, Abraham. One wonders if he was so into the act of sacrifice that, that the angel had to shout twice to get his attention. Or maybe it was just the urgency. Abraham, Abraham. Don't do it. Because now I know. Now I know that you love me. Let's talk about sacrifice for the Christian and what's it, what it means. Sacrifice for the Christian and what it means. You see, in the Old Testament, when people would sacrifice things, they would sacrifice animals that were precious to them. Abraham's wealth was accounted by the herds that followed him. They would take one of those animals... And they would sacrifice it. Now I want you to picture with me what a sacrifice actually looks like. Because a sacrifice is not a clean thing. You're going to get dirty when you get in sacrificing. You're going to get dirty. You're going to get bloody. You're going to get gory. Sacrifice isn't easy. Not only that, sacrifice costs you something. You remember in 2 Samuel, the 24th chapter, when David... After numbering Israel, there, were, there had been a plague brought down upon all of Israel. And the angel of the Lord was standing before the threshing floor of a Jebusite. And David shows up after the Lord prompted him to go there to offer a sacrifice. And he says some interesting words. He says some interesting words. And I'm going to paraphrase it. He says... Well, the Jebusite offered to give him the sacrifice and all the materials for the sacrifice for free. 
And David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. What's the principle? Sacrifice costs. Sacrifice costs. Abraham was giving up the thing that was most dear to him. Not only was he giving it up, he had given it up. He had given up that which was most dear to him. Thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. Sacrifice is a part of the Christian life. We're called to sacrifice. And sometimes it's going to cost things that we don't want to give up. It's going to be very dear sometimes. It'll be a very dear price. And yet it's something that we need to do to prove our obedience, to prove our faith, to prove that the grace of God rests upon our life. Sacrifice. Now, that doesn't mean a sacrifice that comes out of a heart just to be sacrificing so you can earn favor with God. Because in Psalm 51, it says, Sacrifice you don't desire, else I would give it. A broken and a contrite heart. That's true sacrifice. Or even when Samuel decided that uh, Saul, sorry, Saul decided that, uh, in the book of Samuel, Saul decided that he wanted to make up to God for his mistake. <laughs> sacrifice is worthless unless it's done from a proper heart. But those sacrifices are often required of us by God. And often it's by those things that are most dear to us. Most dear to us. There's another issue. And that's often by looking at this text, we say, all right, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sacrifice this very dear thing to me. But I know God's going to give it back because he gave it back to Abraham. You ever done that? I have. I've thought, you know, based on this story, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll say that I'm going to give up this thing for God. And, I, you know, I'll... I'll go through the motions and, and then God will give it back and everything will be fine. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. As a matter of fact, that'll probably be the very time that God takes it. Because it's become an idol. Because it distracts from God. Our faith needs to be focused upon God. And when our faith is focused, that's when sacrifice becomes, quote, easy, unquote. You know, I think we often forget what the object of our faith is. And I think we often forget why we're living this life. It says in Psalm 16, verse 5. The Lord is mine inheritance and my cup. The Lord is mine inheritance and my cup. 
You see, we often get attracted to those after-graduation dreams. You know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to graduate, and I'm gonna, I've got my, uh, my BA in accounting, and I'm going to go up and take my CPA exam, set myself up in an accounting firm, and I'll be fine. And I'll give to the church, you know, every once in a while, but I'm going to set myself up in a good house. With, you know, two cars, 2.5 kids, all of that other stuff. But God needs to be the focus. Those things are extra, extra on the side, extra. And if they're getting in the way, maybe God is asking us to sacrifice them. And we need to be willing to let them go. Looping back to some of the Reformation thought, the primary problem with man is sin, rebellion. Because of his sin, he's out of that relationship. Because he's out of that relationship, he has no desire to seek that relationship whatsoever. So God has to seek the relationship with us. The basic problem with us, even as Christians, is that we want to run our own lives. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. And I'm calling us not to do that anymore, but to give it all up to God. To sacrifice ourselves to God. It says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to Christ. We don't have the privilege of making our own decisions. We don't have the privilege of guiding our own lives. And I don't care what major you are, if you're not a Bible major, it doesn't matter. This isn't just for Bible majors, this is for business majors. This is for home economics majors. This is for every major. Our life is not our own, but it's His. We need to seek God first with everything that we have in all areas of life and allow Him to use us in all areas of life. In the workplace, in the car, when we're driving to the workplace, in play. When you put the VCR tape in to watch a movie for two hours, are you doing it to the glory of God?
our life is meant to be lived to the glory of God. This life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How can we contemplate a holy God who has reached himself down to us at such a great expense, such a great expense? He emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2, to become man. Not only did he empty himself, but for the joy set before him, despising the shame, despising the shame of the cross. He went to that death. He bled for us. And yet most of the time in my life, all I'm thinking of is what I can get in the next moment. How wrong I am. How wrong I am. And how I think about my own gain rather than the God who gave up so much that I might be saved. Abraham had a, a faith that was amazing. To take that which he loved the most and willingly give it up to God. God honored that. He honored it in the person of Christ. And truly today, his seeds is more numerous than the sand on the shore. May we live to the glory of God and not for ourselves. Will you stand with me so we can pray? Lord, first of all, I just want to thank you for who you are. Just for the very fact that you are God. And just for the fact that you... You love us so much that you want to bring us into a relationship with you. It's just something I can't understand. I, I can't conceive of it. I pray that you would always bring to our remembrance who you are and everything that we do. I just pray that you would bring to our remembrance who is in control. Thank you for your word. And thank you for how it speaks to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.